0: Let's pray together, ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Lord, we have lots of needs today, and we are glad that you know them all. And so as we come to you, we pray that you would meet us at the point of our need. Encourage us by your spirit, through your word. Uh, Draw us to the Lord Jesus. Help us to love you more, serve you better. Make us a blessing, we pray. And may it be the case that the whole earth is filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The Persian, the the Medo Persian Empire had really dominated the Mediterranean region for 150 years. About 2,500 years ago, on a day in 490 BC, All that changed. The Greeks defeated the Persians. And it made a drastic change in Western civilization. Now, people in Athens back home, of course, didn't know of the victory. How could they? They were unlike us. They didn't have instant access to the news. And as the story goes, back then, someone had to come and bring them that word. Armies used runners to communicate the results of the battle. And lookouts would be there watching. Is there anything I can tell from his body language as to whether or not we've been victorious or lost? And that day, as the story goes, the runner came about 25 miles with the news. There's an enduring legacy from the battle of Marathon because it became the inspiration for our current Marathon events. Well, somewhere between fact and myth, and we're not exactly sure, there's a story about a man named Philippides. He was the messenger that came to the city of Athens, told the Greeks that they had won, and it said that he announced the victory and then, exhausted, dropped dead. He would pushed himself to the absolute limit. And with good reason. He had the news. He had a responsibility to pass it on. And the Athenians were those he hoped would rejoice in it. Isn't that kind of the way it is for us who say we're faithful followers of Christ? We have the best news. And we're called to pass it on. The Lord of heaven and earth wants all peoples to know. And how? Only as those of us who follow the Savior commit ourselves to self-sacrifice and faithful witness. Our topic today is the Great Commission and Our Small Groups. And it's all about Christ's call, make disciples of all the nations. We're looking at the section uh, Agelon just read for us, Matthew chapter 28. If you can turn to that in your Bible, Matthew 28, we'll look at verses 1 through 20. Now, in these verses, Matthew completes the good news that he has begun at the beginning of his gospel. And in so doing, he addresses four interrelated topics that bear on the, commi- on the Great Commission, and we will call them these. First of all, what you've got, and that's verses 1 to 10. And then, what you're against, verses 11 to 15. And then, who's with you, verses 16 and 17. And finally, verses 18 to 20, the challenge, let's do it. So, what you've got, what you're up against, who's with you, let's get it done. And then we'll take all of that and apply it to our small groups uh, right here at Covenant. Well, what you've got, verses 1 to 10. It had been a very hard week. Jesus' trial, violent execution and death. But And now it's early morning and grieving women head toward his tomb, we're told. Suddenly there's a mega earthquake and an angel comes down from heaven. Uh, it's a little confusing. He's said to be like... ...lightning and also dressed in white. And he rolls back the stone from the tomb, sits on it... ...and the guards that are there, they quake and fall over as if dead. And then the angel speaks to the women and he says... ...don't be afraid, I know why you're here, you're looking for Jesus. Well, he's not here, come see where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples... He's going before you. You'll be able to see him right in Galilee. And so the women are out of there filled with, understandably, fear and joy. And they're running to tell the disciples. And you may be saying to yourself, and I thought I had a hard time getting here today. What a way to start a Sunday morning. <laughs> The Lord once called an inexperienced evangelist and church planter to work among and some unreached people who were pantheists. They had all kinds of gods. They heard him talk about Jesus and somebody that, whose name they understood to be Anastasis. And they kind of took that information as, oh, well, this is just more, two more deities that we can add to our collection. But they misunderstood They thought that when Paul was talking about Jesus and anastasis, those were two different individuals. As a matter of fact, anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. And so Paul comes to say, I'm proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And the point for us? The call to make disciples is rooted in the power of Christ's resurrection. We don't have any other power. No resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied because we have believed in a lie. Well, Matthew begins... With this amazing news, Jesus has died. His body was placed in a tomb, but it has been raised from actual death. What a word of hope. Making disciples, however, we might think, is not for the faint of heart. Neither is it a cakewalk. Which is why it's important to know what you're up against. And that's in verses 11 to 15. Now, people had heard Jesus talk about how he was going to be raised from the dead. And um, so Jewish leaders surmised that after his death, his disciples might come and secretly take away his body... And then they'd announce, he's risen. They would be conniving, playing with the facts of the matter. And so, to avoid that deception, they had said to Pilate, could you please post a guard? And he does. We're told about that back at the end of chapter 27. Now, let's just remind ourselves about this state of affairs there's a tomb that has a door, and the door is a large stone that's circular. And it's in a track, and you roll the stone up the track to get it to open the door, and you roll the stone down the track to close the door. And then, in addition to having that tomb with the stone in front of it, There are guards, and we don't know how many. There may have been four, there may have been ten, maybe thirty, who knows how many guards, but they're there, and they are to make sure that nothing happens amiss. Suppose a guard fell asleep. Common knowledge, execution. He's dead. And then on top of it all, there's a seal placed at the grave to make sure that this stone is not moved. Well, as we read earlier, the guards are experienced the earthquake and the angel coming down from heaven, and we're told that they fall over as if dead. Somehow, they gather themselves together. And some of them, not all, go back into town and they describe to the religious authorities what's just taken place. And together, they hatch a plan, and it's a plan to conceal the truth, marked by bribery, lies, cover-up. Verses 11 to 15 are important because of the implications for us fulfilling the Great Commission. We live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. Uh, John Stott comments on two problems that the church faces. He says one is fanaticism and the other is pluralism. Fanaticism. We see it again and again. It's this um, un critical, zeal, uh, obsessive enthusiasm for one's own personal religious preference. We have friends from India. Uh, They know the Hindu threat. They've been exposed to it. You want to talk about Jesus? You're going to die. Maybe you've heard of Muslim honor killings. Same sort of thing that's not unlike what happens to Jesus. He certainly knew fanaticism. That took him to the cross. Religious pluralism is another challenge that any would-be disciple-makers face. It's the idea that all religions are are of equal uh, value. Um, They're equally ultimate. Doesn't matter. Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism, agnosticism, pantheism, each is valid. But there's one thing about pluralism. It will not tolerate one thing. Any claim to ultimate truth. Anything that suggests there is true truth in our world. That is a problem. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And you see, there is an underlying issue below fanaticism and pluralism. It's a problem that exists in the human heart. Jeremiah puts it this way. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Paul tells us the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't t- submit to God's law Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. Or, as Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, we once were dead in our trespasses. So what do you got? You got the reality and the power of the resurrected Christ. And what are you up against You're up against an unsaved world that cannot submit to God's law. And that raises the question, what hope is there for people Christ has called to be disciple-makers? What hope is there? Well depends on who's with you, and that's when we need verses 16 and 17. Please look at them. Now, the angel told the uh, the women, come on, get going now. Go to his disciples. Tell them that Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. Go quickly. You're going to see him there. And so the women can go and tell the disciples what they've experienced at the tomb. They can make their report. But in God's wisdom, if you're going to make people who are followers of Jesus be disciple-makers, well, there's something even better than just hearing the women's report who were at the tomb. What's that? Look at verse 17 in the beginning of verse 18. When they saw him, that is, Jesus, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them. Jesus takes the initiative to enter into the world of people who have been broken by his crucifixion. He makes himself available to them and he speaks words personally to them. Now, isn't that what people need the world over? If you have spiritual need, don't you have have desire, a longing for somebody to interact with you personally? I mean, think about your own life. Have you ever been in deep distress? I have, I can tell you. And someone comes to you in the name of Christ? Yes. And the impact of that personal touch is both immediate and huge. And I've revisited those moments in my mind again and again of people coming to me in my brokenness. To have someone take time to enter my suffering, to lend a listening ear. It's been so meaningful. It's been so comforting. It's been so encouraging. The problems of life aren't nearly as important as the ones who are with us in the middle of them. So, you've got the power of the resurrection. You're up against a world of resistance. Who's with you? Jesus is, the resurrected Lord. And so that brings us to verses 18 and following and his word. Come on, let's get to it. Let's get after this challenge of making disciples. Now, let me just ask you, what jumps out at you as you look at those three verses? There is one imperative verb, and it is make and keep on making disciples. That's the core idea there. Uh, What's a disciple, you say? Well, a disciple is someone who has been brought into a relationship with a teacher. Over in John chapter six, verse 40, or Luke chapter six, verse 40, Jesus says that when a student is fully taught, he'll be like his teacher. He doesn't say he'll just think like his teacher. He says it'll be like his teacher. And so a disciple is someone who is first of all brought into a personal relationship with the teacher. He's accepted the teacher's authority. He's submitted to his requirements. And he is committed to becoming like the teacher. Which means taking his place, being a disciple maker in this case. What else is here? Well, one main verb, make disciples, and then three supporting participles. Do you see them? Going, baptizing, teaching. When um, our kids were middle school, I thought to my, I'm I'm thinking about the Great Commission, and I think to myself, whoa, going. If I'm gonna be a decent father, I really need to teach my kids something about traveling. We need to go places, so they get used to this idea. So they'll be able to make the transfer to going to a lost world. And so we did take some trips, one of which was to go to Turkey. I wanted them to have a cross-cultural experience so that they could get the idea that traveling is important for the people of God. Going, then. And baptizing, Jesus says, "Place my seal, my sign of ownership, on disciples, and then teaching." Jesus won't be con- won't be content with going to a few. He says, "Go to all the peoples of the world." He won't be satisfied with. Um, uh, a a, a little authority. He says, all authority has been given unto me. And he won't be satisfied with teaching a few things. He says, teach them all that I have commanded you. Now, you might have thought that at this point, Jesus would have hung his head in discouragement. He's there with the disciples, and he looks around and he says, you know, you're right. This isn't a cakewalk. This business of making disciples, it's not for the faint of heart. Frankly, it is too much. I mean, I've overestimated the difficulties. Obviously, you don't have innately what you need to to step to the, the plate here. Why did I ever start this Great Commission thing anyway? You could imagine him thinking something like that But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he turns with great hope and he gives it to the disciples. What's the hope? Well, look at the striking similarities between the beginning of the gospel and the end of the gospel. Go back to chapter 1 and notice how Matthew identifies the Savior. He says, his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now we come to the end of the book, and Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, it's the presence of the resurrected Christ in the lives of his people that makes all the difference when it comes to being a disciple maker. It does not depend fundamentally on any innate abilities with which you think you've been blessed. It depends upon the power of the resurrected Christ. And so he says, listen up, church. Church. I've got power. You can go to work with confidence. Take the initiative and go to all the peoples of the world with your prayers and with your presence and with my promises. Make them my disciples. Place my mark of ownership on them and teach them all I've said. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Ashley said, when I was in university, I had a ridiculous amount of support. If I was tired, somebody would come by, knock on my door and say, hey, why don't you come to a Bible study with me? It was a shock to my system when I graduated. InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, as you may know, is a Christian ministry that seeks to disciple students on campus. University wanted to find out what happens to students after they graduate, and so they did some research on the subject. They met with students who had been part of university during their college career, and then two years or later after, they interviewed them. They said, What's it like for you? What's it like now that you're out of college? And here are some of the things that they said I have a sense of disconnectedness. I feel marginalized in church because of not being married with children. I lack relational support to live the Christian life when there's so much pressure on me to go backwards. I have a general sense in church of being invisible. Adam is one of those students and he agreed, or former students, and he agreed, he said that in his church a man was not considered an adult who could influence the congregation unless he's married with children and Adam is single. InterVarsity researchers have made three observations uh, to churches as to how they can do better at meeting the needs that young adults have. And these are they. First, churches need to be hospitable. Young adults want to know, is someone expecting me, and do they want me to be there? Being warm and welcoming, Ivy says, is the new cool for emerging adults. Next... Churches need to help young adults very quickly, and the emphasis is on very quickly, churches need to help young adults very quickly find ways to use their gifts and talents to serve others in the church and in the surrounding community. And number three, they need young adults need to see a connection between evangelism, discipleship, and God's call to be disciple-makers worldwide. They want to learn to integrate their faith with their professions to make a difference in the world. Now, I happen to think, and it's just my opinion, but I happen to think that people of all ages are like college students in some of these points. That is to say, I think... People of all ages want to be noticed. I think they want to be recognized and welcomed. Uh, I think that people of all ages want to find places that they can meaningfully serve. And they also want to be helped by those that have gone before them to make links between their faith and a needy world. Can you begin to get some hints as to how the Great Commission might have something to do with our small group ministry here at Covenant? What happens when small groups gather? Well, they're small, first of all, intentionally. You get to 12 and it's really probably too big. How come? Because 12 people can't, more than 12 people can't keep up with all the messages that are flying back and forth between them. They gather face-to-face, small groups share stories, they listen to stories, they hear other people's stories, they pray with and for one another, they learn the Bible together, and they investigate how their gifts might be used in the church and in the community. It is possible, we're told, for churches to experience what's called institutional creep. It's a new term for me. But it's a tendency where the needs of the institution, the organization, take priority over the needs of the people they're called to serve. And it results in people being cold-hearted and misdirected and anything but grace-filled. People are important to Jesus. And he's called you to make disciples. That's because he intends the church to be a people first place. So here's one small step that you can take as an outworking of Christ's call to disciple the nations. Before lunch, and I'll say more about that in a little bit, but before lunch, uh, and as I've already said, you're all invited to stay for lunch, Um, before lunch, spend a little time just checking out the displays that are out in the foyer. You'll see names of small groups. Check them out. See which group is doing what, who's with this group, and who's with that group. And after you've done that, pray and ask the Lord to give you some direction as to where you might plug in. And then give a small group a try. And remember, you are not alone. You're not alone. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He's at work in your heart to shape you, to be more like him. And he has promised to be with you every step of the way. The great, co- the great commission comes to us from our great savior who knows that our greatest needs are relationship with him and relationship with one another. Let's see if this next school year we can make some progress in being more enfolded, more committed to a small group. Lord, we ask you to bless your word to us. We thank you for it. We pray that you would shape us so that we're more like Jesus. We thank you that he's been raised from the dead. And the spread of the gospel is no more difficult in the most remote, remote part of the earth most remote part of the earth than it is in the most comfortable spot in suburbia. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is a spirit of power who regenerates where and when he wills. Help us to be faithful ambassadors. Help us to pass on the good word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing one more song, and Jonah, it is number 439. Let's stand together as we sing.